Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. Today on the show, good cop, bad cop. We're going to be talking about policing, ways in which it goes wrong, sometimes disastrously wrong, or goes right. I, like a lot of you, I'm sure, have been thinking about those high-profile incidents of police actions that have ended tragically in the last couple years, like the Eric Garner chokehold, the Tamir Rice toy gun incident, the shooting of Walter Scott, the arrest of Sandra Bland, and the list, I'm afraid, goes on and on. All those uh, events were captured on video, whether it was cell phone videos taken by bystanders or footage from police dash cams or body cams. And that has given us a close-up view uh, that we have seldom had before of certain kinds of of police-civilian interactions. And uh, watching uh, those videos repeatedly, in my case, has made me wonder about the whole psychology, the whole power dynamics of those interactions, the rules of engagement, the proper and improper use of force, and to ask uh, in those cases where police are at fault, whether it's just a few individual cops who are to blame or whether it is something much bigger perhaps a certain mindset, not only on the part of uh, police departments, but society as a whole. Of course, conscious or unconscious racism may well be a factor in some instances. Societal attitudes that the cops themselves are just picking up and reflecting. Uh, Maybe something in the training that uh, makes bad outcomes more likely than they otherwise would be. Well, uh, rather than uh, just sitting around doing some head-scratching by myself, I decided to contact someone who has thought about and studied these questions in great depth. He is Seth Stoughton, who was himself a police officer once upon a time, a beat cop in Tallahassee, Florida, before he went back to school, got a law degree, and became a scholar specializing in police practices and uh, ways in which they might be improved. Seth now teaches at the uh, University of South Carolina School of Law, and he writes regularly about these issues for publications such as the Atlantic Monthly and the New York Times. You might have uh, also heard him recently on NPR talking about the Sandra Bland case. Well, uh, to start our interview, uh, I wanted to go back to the days when Seth was still a policeman himself uh, in Florida and wondered whether he had ever been involved in any of the sorts of incidents that could have blown up uh, like the ones he now studies. Uh, of course. I mean, I, I was involved in um, a number of tense encounters, a number of use and force encounters, uh, a number of encounters where there was verbal confrontation, if not physical confrontation. Uh, As far as paralleling some of the more egregious incidents that we've seen, uh, thankfully not. I I worked with some really good people there, um, so we didn't have anything as controversial uh, as some of the incidents that, that we've seen recently. Well, was that a, a result of you doing certain things or avoiding certain things? Well, I think it was a, a combination of a couple of different things. One, I worked in an agency that I think really deeply prided itself on professionalism. That culture didn't have a whole lot of toleration for bad policing. Not to say that there weren't um, incidents that, that couldn't have been handled better. Of course, there were. I myself was involved in some of those incidents. 
but nothing as egregious as, as what we've seen. But it's also true that this was the early 2000s. Cell phone cameras were not as common as they are now. Certainly good cell phone cameras with high-quality video were not as common. So that also has to factor into the equation. It wasn't just uh, a behavioral difference. It was also an observational difference. We weren't being recorded to the same extent then as officers are now. If uh, you had been filmed, you would have reined yourself in a bit? I'm certain there are times when I would have if I thought I was being observed. In fact, I'll give you an example. This is something that, that I did. I was working a traffic post at a local university's homecoming weekend. And at around 4 o'clock in the morning, a car drove by my otherwise empty traffic post, blaring music really, really loudly. Well, I was tired and frustrated and screamed at the car to turn its music down. And there was almost certainly an expletive or two involved. Utterly inappropriate, regardless of how tired I was and put upon and overworked I felt. It was utterly inappropriate. And I would not have done it, this I do remember very clearly, I would not have done it had I realized that the car's windows were down. I thought they were up. So in part, I didn't really expect to be observed, even by the very people I was yelling at. Well, the car windows were down. Uh, they heard me, and they turned the music down, rolled the windows up, and drove away. But it's a, it's a good example where if I, was, if I was aware at the time that I had been being observed, almost certainly would not have taken the actions that I did. Now, there was an officer, another officer, a good friend of mine, working the post with me. And one of the things that, uh, that I liked about our culture and about my relationship with this particular other officer is he, he came over to me and said, essentially, I don't remember the exact words, what you did was wrong. If they file a complaint with internal affairs, it's on you because I'm not protecting you from your own mistakes there. What would the uh, the grievance be then? Just the use of abusive language? In in technical terminology, it would be something like conduct on becoming an officer. Uh, it was not a legal violation, but it was certainly a violation of the professional norms that the police are supposed to embody. Is that true everywhere? I mean, is that kind of norm um, on the books everywhere in every police department? And uh, a very different question, is it actually uh, enforced? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that difference. It's almost certainly on the books everywhere. But no, they're not always enforced. In different circumstances, uh, that type of language, that type of behavior um, may have been laughed off, uh, depending on the agency culture, the squad culture, the relationship with the supervisor. You might even get a high five out of it at some places. <laughs> so there's tremendous variation. I, one of the things that's worth pointing out is there are about 18,000 different police agencies in this country, 15,000 uh, local agencies. That's about 12,000 city agencies and about 3,000 sheriff's agencies. I'm sorry, county agencies, usually sheriffs. Uh, so when we're talking about the police and the police culture, it's important to keep in mind that we're talking about a whole bunch of different cultures. Well, it's interesting you, you mentioned that incident, uh, which just involves being rude, you know, because uh, I've been thinking a lot about the range of police behavior that we've seen spotlighted in all of these videos over the last couple of years, especially. And um, a lot of them happen to be racial incidents. That's what we've been focusing on as a as a country lately, it seems. And they run the gamut uh, from, you know, just sort of verbal abuse uh, 
sometimes escalating to physical uh, overreaction to, you know, the more uh, horrific examples of of police violence, uh, you know, shooting people and killing people who seem to be no threat at all. On the low end of that scale, I'm thinking about that uh, video of the um, pool party in McKinney, Texas. And I know you've commented on this, where um, some teenagers, I think, were reported for sneaking into a private pool area or a members-only pool area, and the police responded. And um, there's a famous video of one officer kind of going berserk on these um, African-American teens who are in their bathing suits and it's telling them, get your asses down, uh, using a lot of language like that, uh, and uh, eventually throwing uh, a girl on the ground and and uh, holding her down while she cries. Uh, it's kind of hard to watch. And you said— be. Yes, it, it absolutely should. If, if, if it's not hard to watch, there's something wrong with whoever is watching it. And partly it starts with the guy running into the scene and using, again, like I would say, foul language. Now, some people would laugh at my little— uh, puritanical manners here. Hey, it's police work. You know, it's dirty work. That's how you talk to people. But, I mean, you're suggesting that that's not necessary. Well, not only is it not necessary in most cases, and I think it's worth pointing out, there's always the exceptional case where that may help get one's point across. There's a difference between saying, put the knife down and put the effing knife down, for example. So I, I don't want to say it is never, ever appropriate, but it's certainly not appropriate as a default way of communicating with people in your average call or even in the average tense situation or traffic stop or like the McKinney pool party. Not only is it not necessary, but in many cases, and I would argue the vast majority of cases, it's actually counterproductive. Nobody likes being cursed at, so they don't react well to that. And if they don't react well to that, then by using foul language, which indicates a very aggressive attitude and a a demeaning and often dismissive attitude, the officer who's using that language and that approach might actually be creating totally avoidable confrontation. Had they walked up with a softer tone of voice, they may end up earning much more in the way of cooperation than they do compliance when they rely on yelling, shouting, screaming, and cuss words. You've pointed out that that video, in fact, if people watch the whole thing, offers uh, quite a contrast between two approaches. There's another officer who hasn't gotten as much attention who is on the scene who is talking to the same group of teams in a completely different tone of voice, saying, and now you guys uh, settle down here, don't run away from policemen, that's a bad idea. Uh, And he's just being very friendly and... uh, Relating to them, as I think most of us would relate to a bunch of kids we we don't have a real beef with, that officer hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but it is a a pretty interesting study in contrast. Yeah, the piece that I wrote about the McKinney Pool Party focused exactly on that contrast between the first officer, who's only in about the first 30 seconds, uh, and Corporal Casebolt, who uh, is the the more aggressive officer, who is the subject of most of the, the video. And and it's a remarkable contrast because, in part, there's nothing unusual or there shouldn't be anything unusual about what the first officer does in that 30-second introductory period of the video. Um, He's talking to a group of kids. Kids who are filming walk over to him to give him the flashlight that 
uh, the other officer, when he fell and did the, did the barrel roll and came back to his feet, appeared to have lost. So they give him the flashlight, and he's talking to the kids in a very normal, professionally friendly tone, the way that you would talk to a group of middle school or younger high school kids. Hey, guys, look, all I'm saying is don't run from the police, right? That's just silly. Uh, he's not certainly talking down to them. He is talking to them. And just as important as his tone when he's talking to them is the fact that he's listening to them. They are expressing some concerns about the police maybe grabbing the wrong people or something like that. You can hear one of the kids said, no, no, he wasn't involved. And the officer says, yeah, I, I got it. They're, they're free to go. That's fine. You know, I, I hear you. And just in that very short interaction, you can see uh, what I refer to as the three R's of successful communication. He is receiving what they are saying, he is respecting what they are saying, and he is responding to what they are saying. It's a tremendous contrast to the other officer who is not receptive to anything that anyone is saying. He is there to exercise complete control over the scene to make sure that people stand up or sit down or leave or stay as he tells them to do it. And uh, any disobedience, any lack of deference, any defiance at all is something that he addresses quite forcefully, including violently at one point. Well, would that have been the proper approach in a more extreme situation? There are certainly circumstances that can justify a more aggressive approach. Um, if there is a serious felony incident, uh, a stabbing or a shooting or something like that, then for the safety, not just of the officer, but for the safety of the bystanders and the people who are involved in the incident, it is very important for officers to try and lock down a scene to the extent possible. There is still a good way and a bad way to do that. Gratuitously yelling and screaming and using foul language is not the most effective way of doing that often commanding, but you can command someone in a professional tone, in, a, in an appropriate tone. Um, you have written about the fact that uh, at least, I assume, in some police agencies, if not all, a lot of the training that uh, officers get at the academy is about the dangers they're going to face. And they are, um, you know, steeped in uh, videos and other stories of cops getting attacked and killed. They oh, watch yeah. video after video to the point where uh, the message seems to be you are in constant danger and you have to be ready to react or um, preempt some form of attack on you at any moment. Uh, in fact, uh, you cited an article in an online police publication called Police One. It's called How Command Presence Affects Your Survival. Violent Offenders Are Predators and Predators Tend to Prey Upon the Weak by a police lieutenant from Illinois named John Bennett. And he talks about the fact that, um, you know, in attacks on police, it's sometimes those who come off as nice guys or as weak who end up dead. And therefore, you have to be on your guard at all times. And he says at one point, this is something you quoted, and <laughs> it's worth re-quoting, uh, remain humble and compassionate, be professional and courteous, and have a plan to kill everyone you meet. Now, I don't want to misrepresent this guy. The gist of the article isn't kill everybody, but, but it is be prepared at all times to go all the way. Yeah, that's right. And to some extent, I don't think that's at all objectionable. To some extent, I think uh, officers need to have the capability 
to um, use violence to defend themselves and defend others when necessary. One of the police metaphors that I've heard in training is the light switch. Officers need to be able to know when to turn it on, like a light switch, but also they need to know when to be able to turn it back off again. That's a difficult thing to do, and it's one that uh, officers, unfortunately, sometimes have some some major problems with. And you're right about the, the emphasis that's put on this idea of command presence, exercising unquestioned command over a scene, over a situation, over a group of people, is believed to be the best way for officers to keep themselves and others safe. As we talked about, sometimes that may be true, but in many cases, it's going to cause conflict that could have been avoided. Some of the research or the idea that being officer-friendly can expose you to danger, can increase your threat uh, or increase threats to, to the officer, comes from an FBI publication that interviewed inmates who were serving time for violent assaults or even murders of police officers. And one of the things that they said in those interviews is that being too friendly can come across as complacency and that can get an officer killed. The problem with that is I don't think it's reliable, certainly not from a research perspective. I'm very skeptical of the idea that there is a strong causal connection between officers being nice and officers getting killed. In fact, I think there's plenty of anecdotes on the other side where officers were able to talk someone down or even avoid a life-threatening situation because they had built a good history with someone, because they were treating someone respectfully rather than unnecessarily disrespectfully. Does that kind of training, which I think you've said is is widespread, right, that, that teaches officers that they are in constant danger and that things can go go bad at any time and to never let their guard down, does that put people in a, a psychological position, though, that's um, pretty hard to navigate? Uh, how do you know when you can be relaxed and nice with people and how do you know when to to man your battle stations and get ready for something nasty? I think the official response is probably something like, you're always nice to people, but you're also always ready to man the battle stations. So so you really can do that. I mean, psychologically, um, you can be nice right up to the moment you pull your gun out. Um, and even afterwards. <laughs> not really. Yeah. Not Not realistically. I think, like I said, I think that's probably the official response. But I think we're talking about threading a very narrow needle here. It changes the way that you interact with someone. If I walk up to someone and I am emotionally or psychologically considering them, perceiving them as a threat or as a potential threat, then even if I'm speaking to them in a professional tone, I may not be doing the types of things that I need to do to engage with them in a meaningful way to build a positive police relationship with them. So imagine that you're an officer, and you've been trained, as is not just widespread, but I would say all but universal. You've been trained to approach everyone as a potential armed threat, every encounter as a potential deadly force encounter, no exceptions. Anyone can kill you. And now you're on the job, and you're driving around, and you want to do some of this community policing that you've heard about, and you see someone walking down the sidewalk keeping in mind that you've been trained that that person might be an armed threat, 
that talking to them might expose you to a deadly force encounter. Are you really going to stop and talk to them? Are you going to drive by with your window up? Are you going to wave at them? Are you going to glare at them? If you do stop and get out and talk to them, are you going to walk up casually, even if it's from a tactically advantageous position? Are you going to walk up casually and have a conversation and get to know them? Or are you going to ask for their name and their identification, maybe ask consent to search them, maybe frisk them if you can develop reason to frisk them? The relationship that you have with the individual that you're talking with is going to be very, very different. And in the long term, both with that individual and with hundreds or thousands or millions of other citizens who have that type of interaction with the police, we're talking about a, an approach uh, that can undermine very significantly community trust in the police or one that can potentially solidify or repair some historically broken relationships. You've looked at the, uh, the numbers, what statistics are available on um, attacks on police, uh, deaths and injuries in the line of duty due to attacks. And uh, I think you've said that they're down, uh, that perhaps the training that may overemphasize such dangers and make police maybe a little more uh, defensive and, and fearful than they need to be? Yeah, one of, the, one of the misnomers in policing is that policing has become increasingly, not just violent, but increasingly deadly to officers. Uh, officers say, you know, 20 years ago it wasn't like this. And we have some good statistics on assaults on officers and also felonious homicides of officers, that is, murders of officers, as well as accidental deaths and medical deaths in the line of duty and the like. And what that shows in the uh, officers feloniously killed in the line of duty, that is murdered in the line of duty, there is a steady decline from the mid-70s until now. Uh, assaults overall have been less steady. There's been some peaks and valleys, but we're down now to a 10-year average of 57,000, down from a, a high of around 66,000. Uh, we've seen a decline in the average number of assaults with firearms down from 3,200 or so in the mid-90s to about 2,200 every year now. We've seen a decline in edged weapon assaults, that's knives and stabbing implements. So given those trends, though, the obvious question, is the danger to officers communicated in, I think, a really visceral way in training by showing them many, many videos of officers being attacked and, and killed, is that oversensitizing them? Is that making them too jumpy? Is that making them feel maybe even embattled in a way that... Uh, undermines their ability to, to deal with people in a courteous and confident way. Yes, I, I think it is. Uh, I don't think anyone should minimize the very real dangers of working in law enforcement. But I think that exaggerating those dangers can lead to poor training and policy decisions and can lead to some poor decision-making by officers out in the field. I'm wondering if psychologically, too, it doesn't like embed a message that it's us against them, that we are a tribe that is under attack and uh, we have a target on our backs at all time, whether absolutely. there's... A, yeah? A absolutely it does. And it skews officers' perceptions of how common that type of attack, that type of murder of a fellow officer actually is. One of the ways that our brains work as humans, um, we are not very good at estimating frequency 
of events unless we have actual hard data, right? We're, we're just sure. not very good at it. One of the ways that our brains do that is through something that is called an availability heuristic. And all that that means, it's a nice fancy academic term that you can throw around with your friends. Basically, all it means is when you don't know how frequently something happens, you estimate by thinking about how many other similar and noteworthy incidents you're aware of. So for an officer who hasn't looked at the FBI's data on law enforcement officers who've been killed and assaulted, when an officer is thinking, how dangerous is this job? How likely am I to get assaulted? How likely am I to be killed? They are inundated with imagery and videos and stories, secondhand stories, thirdhand stories, of officers being violently assaulted and killed just on the basis of the way our brains work as humans with this availability heuristic, they are going to perceive that as far more common than it actually is. So those numbers that I was talking about, 57,000 assaults a year, 51 officers feloniously killed every year on average, those are still high numbers. They are. They're not good things. No. But you also have to keep in mind, we're talking about out of about 67 million police-civilian interactions every year. The odds are tremendously low that an individual officer in an individual encounter is going to be assaulted or injured or seriously injured or killed. And that's something that I think officers need to be aware of. Not that their training should be any different. They still need to, of course, be trained and prepared for the worst-case scenario, but they don't always need to expect it. The difference between expectation and preparation is when you expect something, you increase the probability that you're going to react to what you expect, even when it doesn't actually exist yet. I'm wondering, when we, we look at videos like, let's say, the Walter Scott shooting in North Charleston, South Carolina, this is the case where uh, Walter Scott, a black man, was pulled over by a white cop because a brake light was out on his car. Mm-hmm. Cop went up and talked to him, went back to the police car, and Walter Scott ran. The best theory of that is that uh, he knew that he was delinquent on child support payments and was scared of getting arrested for that, so he ran. The next thing we know, the le- next piece of incontrovertible evidence that we have is a, a cell phone video taken by a bystander of Walter Scott fleeing the officer on foot and being shot three times in the back. Yeah. And the officer filed a... I think, I think it was actually shot. I think it was hit five times. I think if I remember times. right, the officer shot, fired eight times and hit him five, but okay. I, I may have those numbers wrong. Yeah, you're probably better informed than I am. Uh, and of course, there's more to it. The officer falsified the report, may have moved evidence, a taser, to back up a uh, story about uh, Walter Scott having taken his taser. But the fact is, it looks like you've got a guy who's fleeing. Um, it looks like you've got a guy who hasn't committed a violent crime and is being shot. In a situation like that, and obviously there's speculation, a lot of speculation here, and maybe you don't want to go there, but I'm wondering, what do you think psychologically might have been going on for that officer? Did he think he was in danger, or had the switch just been flipped somehow that might have triggered his reaction uh, based on his training? Uh, yeah. in a wrong way? It's, that's, a, that's a great question. And what the officer did in that case was so beyond the pale, was so egregious that I really can't even begin to speculate about what he was thinking. 
you're, you're taking the responsible uh, approach of not speculating. I'm going to be less responsible and just sure. say that after watching a lot of these videos uh, of some of the most famous cases and some less famous cases, you know, it just seems to me that what we see is um, a spectrum of uh, reactions on the part of these particular police officers that sometimes start with a desire to take control, to establish their authority. And when their authority is threatened by, say, someone fleeing, someone talking back, someone not responding to a command quickly enough, I I think I see a mixture of, like, anger and panic. Uh, Maybe fear is mixed in there. And maybe some training, an idea that my duty is to take control. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. Okay, that's just absolute naked speculation on my part. Well, I think there's something to that, although it's difficult in any individual incident to say, here's what the officer Right, absolutely. But across a broad spectrum, looking at a couple of different cases, I certainly think there are examples of exactly what you're describing. Examples of an officer who, being faced with unexpected defiance, or even just a lack of deference, exactly, yeah, uh, feels like they have lost control of that situation, and they try to reestablish control by escalating, sometimes physically. I actually think the Sandra Bland traffic stop is a very clear example of exactly this approach. The officer in that case walked up to Sandra Bland's car with the ticket pad after their initial interaction. And before he gave her the warning, before he explained anything, he said something like, okay, are you all right? And she said, I'm waiting on you. And she sounded irritated. He actually says, yeah, he says, you sound very irritated. Yeah. He must have both heard and seen that she was irritated. I don't know her body language or or whatever. We can't see that in the video. But he says, you're right, you seem very irritated. And she says, I am. And she explains why she's irritated. And he says, are you done? Yeah, right. He pauses. I've counted this, by the way. He pauses for about five seconds. Five seconds is a long time in a conversation. He pauses for about five seconds and says, are you done? Now, I've been married at this point for going on... uh, (laughs) 13 years. I've been with my wife for 15 years. I have trouble thinking of any conversation we've had, particularly a potential argument where one of us is a little bit irritated, when the phrase, are you done, has been a good thing to say. Right. So he didn't escalate yet. What he did was fail to de-escalate. He didn't remove the tension the way that he could have or potentially could have from that encounter. And instead, he asks her to put her cigarette out. She does not respond well to that. She doesn't refuse, but she certainly questions him in a way that implies defiance or lack of cooperation. She says something like, why do I have to put my cigarette out? It's my cigarette and I'm sitting in my car. And at that point, he has lost control. He feels that... Uh, she's not listening, she's not responding, she's certainly not obeying. And it's only then that he puts his ticket pad down and his pen back in his pocket and calls her out of the car. I don't think he was going to call her out of the car originally, or he wouldn't have been carrying his ticket pad in his hand. He would have walked up to her car and put it down immediately. Right? At that point, he calls her out of the car. He is exercising authority. That is an escalation. Yeah, yeah, I've watched that one many times as you have, and it just seems from the get-go that even that first question he asks, or that first statement he makes, you sound very irritated, has an edge on it, uh, like, 
I'm not going to take anything from you, miss. I'm not going to take even, you know, a sour look from you. Uh, It was like a parent scolding a child. It was like somebody um, who's decided he's not going to take any guff. And uh, and is that appropriate? I mean... Well, I, I don't think it is. So remember back to, the, back to those three R's of communication that I like, receive, respect, respond. I don't think with the right tone, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying you seem irritated. Um, he's receiving the signals that she's sending, even non-verbally, the non-verbal clues. But why should he even go there? Why not just stick to business, you know? I, so I think he should go there. Again, you have to strike the right tone and think about the right circumstances. But in something like this, a traffic stop, particularly when he had already decided to write a warning ticket rather than an actual ticket, and particularly when he knew from his earlier conversation that it was her first day in Texas. She had just gotten there yesterday. Right. I think he had the opportunity to build a good relationship with her uh-huh. there, to say, you seem irritated. And when she responds, say, you know what, I, I would hate to welcome you to Texas with a ticket. I just wrote you a warning. I did want to pull you over and make sure you knew how important cha- using signals for lane changes are, particularly near a college campus, particularly near an intersection, right? He had an opportunity to diffuse that irritation, to build a more positive relationship. In other words, just to leave her with a better impression of him and of his agency and of law enforcement in general than she had at that moment in the encounter. I think that's a really important part of policing. Mm, mm. For, for a couple of reasons. One, I just think it's the right thing to do. It's the human thing to do. Uh, but it's also instrumentally valuable. Well, you know, I've, I've had uh, encounters with police that um, – I've had all kinds of encounters, but uh, some, <laughs> some good ones – where, you know, I was pulled over and, oh, no one likes that. It's an awful feeling, you know. You know you're going to get slammed with something expensive probably. Uh, you don't even know what you did wrong a lot of the time. And some of them have said, yeah, I'm sorry to have to do this, but did you realize you did this or that? And it's just like, oh, one human being to another who doesn't really want to be punishing me made me feel a whole lot better than someone who talked down to me treated me like a uh, misbehaving child and uh, maybe maybe even dug in a little bit of insult in the process. And, and you add the fact that she was African-American. You add the fact that she was uh, an activist. You know, it was very sensitized to police abuses. She was involved with the Black Lives Matter campaign. Uh, and she repeatedly in that interaction was talking about her rights uh, and was obviously scared of what the guy might do to her. Uh, tell me this. Um, how many police agencies do the kind of sensitivity training that um, might prepare them to deal with someone who is afraid of them and who is on the defensive for, for, for historically justifiable reasons? Not as many as I would like. We don't have good numbers, but I can tell you, at least anecdotally, not as many as I would like. The, the group of agencies that tended to do it the best are actually university and college police departments. And potentially agencies with a uh, a high number of university and college uh, students or a high immigrant population. So I'm I'm relying in part on my own experience. Yeah. Uh, Tallahassee is a major college town. It has two major universities. It has a couple of colleges and technical schools. We have graduate students and professors from all over the world. And at some point, you are going to interact with one of them as an officer. You may pull one over. You may meet one at a bar. You never know. 
So we had, uh, I think, a university police officer come in and talk to us about the things that um, some of those students and professors, the preconceptions that they have about the police and the way that that's going to affect our encounters with them. Someone who grew up in a country with an authoritarian police state regime might be absolutely terrified of the police. They might have lost family members to the police. They might themselves have been beaten or tortured by what counts for police in their home country. Well, let me just say that this this definitely applies uh, to people coming from, you know, despotic countries, but also uh, I'm not going out on a limb here to say it applies to black Americans here in the U.S. Absolutely. Uh, no, I, I was just talking about the, the type of training that I think exists most commonly, but yeah. you, you're exactly right. To put it in the sharpest perspective, I as an officer need to know that someone who may be from a certain part of the world has had historically awful relationships with a police department, with a police force, with a government agency that looks very little like mine, but we are superficially identical. We both wear uniforms and we both carry guns. I need to know that going into the encounter so I can take the steps I need to reduce their fear in a way that reduces the chances of confrontation, in a way that leaves them uh, trusting me more both because it's better for my safety as the officer and also because it's better for the long-term mission of the police department. If that person witnesses a crime later, if they're still afraid of me and my agency, they're not going to want to talk to us. But if they trust us, then you get more cooperation. You get more people who are willing to assist the police in the ways that civilians, uh, in the way that the police rely on the civilians to assist. Well, the same thing is true of people, neighborhoods, communities in this country that have historically had very bad relationships with the police. Officers need to know that uh, a 16-year-old black kid coming out of a neighborhood with really depressed socioeconomic uh, status, a long history of confrontation with the police, that that individual might not just have their own negative interactions with the police, but they have probably never heard a good thing about the police in conversations with their friends and family members. And that can dramatically change the tone of a police encounter. Officers don't have to worry about that as much when they're dealing with a middle or upper class uh, white 16-year-old. I know it's hard to make uh, generalizations about police training probably because of so many different agencies and so many different places and localities. But are police trained to have thick skins and not react to, you know, backtalk and uh, belligerent language and so on from people they're dealing with? Formally, yes. Formally, that's a fairly common aspect of police training. But formal training is not the end-all, be-all of what guides officer actions. You also have to keep in mind informal cultural norms. Every officer who goes through the police academy hears some version of forget everything you've learned in the academy because now you need to know how we do it on the street. Sometimes you even hear that in the academy. You have instructors who are saying, uh, we're teaching it to you this way because we have to, that's what the state requires, but you'll learn the real way to do it when uh-huh. you get out on your own, you know, when you get out with your with the agency that you'll be working. Yeah, so I, I think I'd rather uh, widen my focus to not just formal training, but the informal cultural precepts themselves. There it's much more varied. Right. I've spoken to officers 
who are absolutely expected by their agency, by their peers, by their supervisors to take a thick skin, to be a duck, one of them told me, let it roll off your back like water, not a big deal. I got similar instruction as an officer. But other agencies can take a very different approach. Other agencies say, you cannot tolerate disrespect because if you, as the officer, get disrespected and they see that, that you don't do anything about it, then they're going to disrespect the next officer and they might even escalate. That disrespect might turn into violence. Uh-huh. What do you so, think? I think that's a load of crap. Uh, I, I think the, the way that you get things done is by building good relationships and you don't build good relationships by getting into pissing matches over whether or not my uniform and authority are being respected. I, I think that approach smacks of uh, Cartman from South Park, you know? <laughs> you will obey my authority! Well, that's not a good way to get the, the buy-in that police rely on from a community to do their jobs. It definitely would seem to me, and, you know, what do I know? I've never been a police officer. But that to have your ego involved to the extent, for instance, that it seemed like the officer in the Sandra Bland arrest did is just a bad idea all the way around. It's, it's a terrible idea. And, and I'll give you an example from a, an officer in a major city I won't identify, said that the expectation, you know, they, they were told, officers were told, go out and clear the corners. And what that referred to is make sure that no one is loitering on the street corner. Um, in certain neighborhoods. The problem with that is it's, it's not illegal to loiter on the street corner. You can hang out on the street corner all you want, but officers were told, they were expected, clear your corners, make sure people keep moving for a whole bunch of reasons. It was believed to drive down crime and violence and the like. The problem with it is how do you enforce an illegal order or an order that the officer doesn't actually have the authority to give? If you say, all right, guys, keep moving, and they go, no, then what do you do? And at that particular agency, officers were discouraged from even looking like they were tolerating that sort of disrespect. No, I am, and this is a, a phrase at least in Southern law enforcement, no, I am the by God American police and you will do what I say. Mm. Again, that is terribly counterproductive on a couple of different levels. It increases the possibility of a totally avoidable confrontation. That increases the possibility of violence, both by the officer and by the suspect or the people that they're dealing with. It undermines the long-term relationship that the officer and his agency is going to have with that individual and others in the community. It's just an awful way to go about serving the constituency, to go about serving and protecting the community. Did you, as a, as a young cop, uh, ever run into that yourself, though, internally, inside yourself? Like, whoa, my authority is not being respected here. I've got to do something about this. I, I'm sure I did. I, I'm unable to think of a particular incident. I and the folks that I worked most closely with, I think, took a lot of pride in not having an ego. Um, being a professional meant that my sense of self and my uh, individual identity was totally separate than my police identity. When someone disrespected me, they weren't disrespecting me, Seth Stoughton, the person. They were disrespecting the uniform. They were disrespecting the badge. And my job as an officer was to earn their respect, not coerce their fear or respect. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there were dynamics uh, where I did not live up to that standard. 
I, I will say this. One of, the, one of the realizations that I had as an officer is the best way to have uh, a good encounter with someone is to share as much power as you can safely do so with them. Uh, so I, I remember on a couple of occasions talking to some kids, middle school, high school age kids in some really rough neighborhoods. And I, I wanted some information about something. I don't even remember what it was now, who owned that car, who lives in that apartment, something like that. And the kids in a, in a small group, which can make it very difficult for an officer or any adult to deal with kids when they're in a small group, very disrespectful, cussing up one side down the other. Uh, we don't have to talk to you, F you, right? stuff like that. And using some advice that I got from another officer, I just sort of, I gestured to, to one of the kids who I had seen around before. And I said, hey, can, can I talk to you just privately for just a second? And I got him off to the side a little bit. And I said, listen, you can cuss me all you want. Doesn't bother me at all. Because, you know, I was a kid. I, I remember what it's like needing to save face in front of your friends. I really need to know this information. And the kid gave me whatever information I was looking for and then walked away back to cussing me. Well, that's fine. My job's done. <laughs> and those kids know that next time, I'm not one of the guys who's going to get really upset and they don't need to treat me like that. that I will give them some control. I will give them some autonomy. I will respect them in the encounter without them having to earn it by being defiant. Being defiant is a way of taking power, right? Well, you don't need to be defiant if the officer respects the power that you already have. You know, our, our popular image of police in action movies and, uh, you know, fiction is not of guys standing there happily taking it as people tell them to go shove it. It's of guys throwing other people up against the wall, you know, manhandling them and finally dominating them. I mean, yeah. that's what we tend to admire. The very rational and admirable uh, position you're advocating that you took in that circumstance, does that sell? Um, it, it sells with a couple of different types of officers. Um, one, I think, the young idealist officer, they can understand. It sells with older officers because they don't want to get into the confrontations. They are past the point in their career where that has any appeal. Where it doesn't sell is with the uh, gung-ho, kick-ass and take-names crowd. And for that, you can't just sell, look, this is the right way to do things. You have to sell the instrumental benefits. You have to sell, this will make you more effective at your job. It will allow you to develop more criminal information. It will allow you to solve more crimes. It will allow you to get tips that other officers would not get. And in my relatively short career as an officer, both I and a number of the officers that I worked with got really good actionable criminal intelligence by taking exactly that path. Uh, I can remember one officer particularly when I was still in training, uh, I dealt with a, a theft of a bicycle from a pretty rough neighborhood and found uh, a, a potential witness who identified the suspect by a pretty obscure nickname. And the officer who helped me break that case did it only because he had a good personal relationship with almost everyone in that community. He knew their nicknames. He knew their kids' names. He knew where they went to school. He knew about their families. And they trusted him. So they would give him information. 
and he could ask them for favors. He could ask them for information. That's the type of relationship that makes policing effective, that policing really relies on. So when you're talking about taking officers who are um, used to seeing those action movies, who want to be the action heroes that they see in those buddy cop movies, you really have to sell, I think, the idea that approaching policing the way that I'm advocating for will make you not just a better officer and a better person, but a vastly more effective officer. You know, I'm still um, just agog at the fact that you just described devoting serious resources to tracking down a stolen bicycle. (laughs) I I took everything very seriously at that point in my career, um, and in part it was because I was in training. I was in field training. I still had a, a, a field training officer who was riding with me. So that was the right way to do it, and that was what the book said, take it seriously. So that's what we would do. Hey, I'm all for it, man. I, I think uh, instead of broken windows policies, it should be stolen bicycles. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not a fan of broken windows, but there is something to the idea of taking seriously the quality of life issues that people have. Right. People want security. People want to feel secure. Feeling secure doesn't mean having no crime, by the way. You can have some amount of crime. Every neighborhood has some amount of crime and still feel pretty secure. Feeling secure means knowing that if there is an incident, you can call the police. Uh, You can trust the police. They are there. They are your friends. That's a pretty important part of policing that I think is is quick to dissolve when you have uh, long-running tensions along social lines, along racial lines between a police department and the community it serves. Let's talk about another uh, facet of the use of force that you've written about, and this is Situations where there is a credible threat, mm-hmm. but where police have some alternatives to just immediately shooting the person. One really striking video that uh, came out last year, only 10 days after the um, Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, uh, also in the St. Louis area, was of a young man named, um, I think it's pronounced Kajime Powell. Uh, I don't know if you saw this one. Um, does that ring a bell? This was the, I think, 16-year-old upstairs in the house. Is that right? No, this is a little different. This is a 25-year-old who had... Oh, he was on the side of the street. So, exactly. You know what, what's really sad is I, I get them confused at this There's point. There's so which many. Is, which yeah. is terrifying, right? Yeah, it's true. Well, in this case, he had um, uh, shoplifted at a convenience store, stole a couple of cans of an energy drink, and uh, told the clerk, what are you going to do about it? Walked out onto the street. And this was all caught on uh, a bystander's cell phone video, and put the cans down on the curb um, in full display and waited for the police to come. Mm. So he seems to have planned to do something that would draw the police. And when a patrol car pulls up and the cops jumped out, oh, I should add that uh, the uh, clerk in the store reported that he had some kind of knife, a steak knife or something. He didn't use it, but he had it. Mm-hmm. Um, so. The police jumped out, told him to stay where he was, and he started approaching them and said, shoot me already. And they obliged. Within seconds, they had fired 12 shots, and he was dead uh, as he approached them. I watched it multiple times and just thought, it's really sad. The guy had some mental problems. It looked very much like what's called suicide by cop or Mm -hmm. blue suicide. Um, In those cases, what alternatives do, do police have to immediately using deadly force? In almost every situation, although not every, but in almost every situation, 
time and distance are an officer's best friend. The, the slower you can make the encounter and the uh, stable, safe distance, the better you can keep a stable, safe distance from the suspect, the safer the officer is, and that means the officer doesn't need to use force to escape a potentially unsafe situation. For example, if someone is walking towards you, you can take a step back. If someone is walking towards you while you're standing by your car, you can put your car between you, the officer, and the person who is approaching you. Obviously, there are limits. If someone is running at you with a knife and there is no opportunity for you to safely retreat, then we're talking about a very different case. But in many cases, officers can stabilize by maintaining where they are. Rather than advancing, you stay where you are. Or you can even tactically retreat, take a step back or several steps back to a safe position that allows the officer more time and more uh, a better margin of safety, if you will. Officers in this country are not always very well trained in this idea of tactical restraint of holding their position, or even in some cases, taking a step back to a safe position while they allow time to work to their favor. That's not true in some other countries. There's um, a, a friend and colleague of mine, Jeff Albert, here at the University of South Carolina, uh, is a criminologist who does a lot of work in Australia. And one of the fascinating things about their written use of force policies and what, what we call a force matrix, the, the sort of graphical depiction of what force, what tools, what weapons an officer can use in different situations, it includes this idea of tactical retreat. Sometimes taking a step back is the right way to deal with an encounter. No one's saying that the officer should turn around, get back in their car, and go home. Right? But sometimes taking a step back puts them into a safer position. And that's better for everyone. In the uh, Kajime Paul case, you can, you can see that he was no threat to bystanders. You can see that he was waiting for the police to come, that it seems very plausible that he was, in a sense, you know, committing suicide by walking toward the police. But had they not gotten out of the car, had they backed off, um, it does look as though they could have bought some time. Um, coincidentally, about the same time in, in my area, in California, I read about a case where a an older man, a homeowner, a man who was known to the neighborhood, was having some, you know, emotional turmoil and went out on his front lawn with a gun and said he was going to kill himself and started waving the gun around. And police came and they took their time. They kept their distance. They talked him down. I don't know how long it took, but it took a while. And it ended peaceably uh, with nobody hurt. It seemed like a, a really stark contrast. In the case, in the latter case, First of all, you know, maybe because of, who knows, race, socioeconomics, the police had an image of this guy as a life worth preserving, right? And I do sense in some cases that uh, there's there's not enough emphasis on that, you know, um, that even someone who seems erratic or dangerous at the moment is still a human being, and if you can take steps not to kill them, you should. Yeah, there's not um I'm actually doing some research into police use of force policies, the, the written policies that departments have. And um, some, but not very many, 
uh, have a preservation of life concept built into them. Some of them talk about how the preservation of life is law enforcement's highest obligation. It's not always one that officers can honor, but it is the highest and most important goal of law enforcement whenever it is plausible or possible to achieve. And the, the dynamic you point out is great. There are all, there are all sorts of um, encounters we can think of where officers, by slowing things down, by taking their time, by focusing on a good approach, have been able to uh, avoid potentially catastrophic results from a uh, a guy 12 or 12 years or so or more now in Seattle, in downtown Seattle, who was waving a samurai sword around. Oh, yeah. It was an 11-hour standoff, but he was ultimately captured with only minor injuries. The police ended up using a fire hose and a long ladder to, to safely restrain him. Where if the officers had approached too closely, if they had advanced to the point where the sword became a real imminent threat, they would have shot him and killed him potentially within minutes. Uh, another, um, another gentleman, and I forget, I think it's in Michigan, Kalamazoo, it was in Kalamazoo, an uh, inebriated uh, middle-aged white gentleman walking around with an assault rifle. Um, and the officers did a wonderful job of keeping a safe distance and communicating with him for about 45 minutes until they convinced him to put the gun down and step away from it to the point where they felt safe approaching, keeping him separated from his weapon. And here he was with an assault rifle. They didn't know if it was loaded. They didn't know if it was if he was going to lift it up and shoot at them, which he could have done in less than a second. Right? So that value, preserving life when possible, that idea of what I emphasize as being a guardian, avoiding unnecessary indignity and harm whenever it's possible to do so, is a really important part of good policing, uh, but not always one that gets the, the play that I think it, it deserves. Another incident, by the way, that, that makes the point of the importance of a good approach and good decision-making is the uh, the Tamir Rice shooting. Oh, yeah. This was the 12-year-old boy who was sitting in a park uh, in Cleveland and playing with an air pistol, apparently, according to another caller, uh, a 911 caller, um, pointing a, a gun at passers-by. And the caller says a couple of times, I'm not sure if it's real. That's right. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure if it's, a, if it's a real gun or not. Yeah. Um, now, police cannot take for granted that it is a toy gun. They have to respond with at least some caution that it might be a real gun, uh, even if they had been told by the dispatcher that it was not a real gun. They still have to um, respond as if it might be. But what we saw in that case, captured by a security video, is officers driving their squad car, one officer, I suppose, driving a squad car, right up onto the grass of the park to within about 10 to 15 feet of Tamir Rice. The officers bail out of the car, and the officer who is on the passenger side of the car is very close, dangerously close to this person who, as far as he knows, has a gun. And Tamir Rice is shot and killed within about two seconds of them arriving and getting out of the car. Yeah, I've seen that video too. In no way should they have driven up anywhere near that close. They were giving up a safe distance, and they were giving up the, the benefit of time. When you're at a safe distance, you can afford to take a few extra seconds 
or minutes or hours uh, to make sure that you can resolve the situation safely. They should have parked around the corner or down the street. They should have approached cautiously using cover and concealment. They should have communicated at a distance. Now, I can hear somebody saying out there, I can imagine someone saying, oh, you guys are just asking for a superhuman combination of restraint, of you know, fast calculations, of uh, analysis of costs and benefits that all have to happen in a split second. This isn't possible. But, but are, these, uh, are the tactics that you're describing, are they in use by some police forces in the U.S., and are they succeeding? Absolutely they are. Uh, they're, they're perfectly plausible. By, by the way, it, it's worth pointing out that officers will still make mistakes. Even in the best of worlds, officers will still make mistakes. And a number of those mistakes are going to be reasonable mistakes. Uh, we have to understand that officers aren't superhuman, that they are capable of making, in certain circumstances, perfectly reasonable mistakes. Uh, so we have to allow for that. But that doesn't mean we don't shoot for an appropriate, I just realized that was a horrible, inappropriate <laughs> pun, right? But it, but we still set the goal to be um, as high as possible. We still expect a high standard, um, understanding when we enforce that standard that, of course, reasonable mistakes are plausible and, and will happen. They do happen. But we have police agencies, both in this country and overseas, that have proven the efficacy of the approach that I'm a fan of. Um, Richmond, California, it's a fairly small city, but it had a couple of officer-involved shootings every year until the new chief came in in, I think, 2006, 2007. I might have that date wrong. And uh, instituted new training and new policies and really emphasized to his officers that he expected them to take the steps that they needed to take to keep everyone safe whenever it was possible to do so. Well, for about the next six or seven years, there were no officer-involved shootings by officers of that agency. There were still officer-involved shootings in uh, Richmond, in, in the city, involving officers of other agencies. It was still a high-crime city. It's not like crime just evaporated, and it's not like the, the officers were sitting safely in the station house doing nothing. They were still out there doing their jobs, making arrests, seizing drugs and guns, dealing with a high uh, crime, high violent crime area. But it was a total, until I think late 2014, uh, they had zero officer-involved shootings. Very, very different approach, uh, and a meaningful one. Um, other Countries approach the use of deadly force differently than we do. I was just reading an article about a German police force that emphasizes that using force, and particularly the use of deadly force, is a failure. Now, sometimes it's a necessary failure. Sometimes you can't avoid it. But nevertheless, it's viewed as a failure, not just a tool of last resort and certainly not just a weapon or a tool or a use of force. It is a bad thing. And that, of course, changes the way that officers approach it. Different culture, different country, very different context that we should acknowledge. But nevertheless, that approach is certainly plausible in a law enforcement environment. Do you hear from uh, former colleagues or other police officers out there that, man, you're a turncoat. 
you, you know, <laughs> these criticisms and uh, these reforms that you're advocating, you know, you, you just don't get it. Occasionally, yeah. Um, most of the emails that I get, most of the phone calls that I get, and there are more emails than phone calls, most of the emails are uh, officers from all different levels, uh, line officers, instructors, academy directors, police chiefs, um, who are agreeing in whole or in part with some of my observations and criticisms. Um, but absolutely, I get some emails from officers who, who don't agree with any or all or, or most of what I'm saying and do not believe that there is room for legitimate criticism of law enforcement. So if a former cop is criticizing cops, he must have either been not a real cop or not a good cop, or if he was, he's not now and he's a traitor to the cause. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, those are, those are pretty rare. I, I think most officers realize uh, when I speak to them, and certainly if they read what I write, I'm not cop bashing. And I'm not expecting the impossible. I'm expecting what I think most officers will realize is good policing. And there's, there's room for reasonable minds to disagree about some of what I talk about, some of what I write about. But I think uh, very happily the vast majority of interactions that I've had are, have, been, have been positive. The spate of police abuses that have been captured on uh – say, cell phone videos in the last couple of years, has some people believing that police behavior has gotten worse. I gather that you don't feel that way at all. I, I want to I preface by, by saying that we have abysmal, horrible, embarrassing, ridiculous information, uh, data about police use of force nationwide, statewide, even in individual cities and jurisdictions. And why is that? Why, for instance, isn't the FBI keeping tabs on all of oh, that's Oh, that's a great question. I, I wish I knew. I think it's a combination of um, police agencies being reluctant to provide information that they uh, know can be used to criticize them, mm. to compare them with other agencies who are doing it better, whatever better might be. Uh, I think that's part of the picture. I think part of the picture is also the political power that police unions wield. There has not been sufficient political will to require some of the data tracking that is absolutely essential to understanding police use of force, both nationally and on a state-by-state -state basis or jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction -jurisdiction basis. We don't have the infrastructure right now, although I think it would be relatively easy to build. So there's also a financial aspect of it. Uh, we're going to be requiring more paperwork and more computer programs and more data collection. Um, so there's a little bit of an administrative hurdle as well. So acknowledging first and foremost the embarrassing, appalling lack of information that we have, which is inexcusable in a first world country, in a, in a global leader. I don't think we, we are seeing more police violence I think we are just seeing police violence more often than we did before. And when I have conversations with um, folks who've grown up in those neighborhoods with really antagonistic relationships with the police, one of the things that I hear consistently is the sort of things that middle-class people are just now realizing, the sort of things that they're seeing on the, on the television and on the Internet for the first time that's always existed here. We've always known about it. The only difference is now it's accessible to a broader audience. So I, I think the public 
perception that there's an increase in police violence isn't based on an actual increase in police violence. I think it's based, again, on that idea of the availability heuristic. We are more aware of it now than we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And that makes us think that there's more of it, even when, in fact, uh, the, the use of force by police has dropped in the last 20, 25 years from about 2% of all police encounters to about a percent and a half of all police encounters. But it's also worth pointing out that we're having many more police encounters today than we were 20 or 25 years ago. So even though the percentage may have shrunk, the, the actual incidence of police violence may have increased. Aha, aha. Are we sending police a terrible mixed message? Uh, on the one hand, trying to hold them to an extremely high standard of conduct uh, in extremely difficult circumstances. And on the other hand, as a society, sort of telling them, by the way, your job isn't just to to enforce the laws. It's to dish out punishment along the way. You know, make these people suffer. Rough them up a little bit. You know, uh, we want you to do that because we're angry at criminals. Yeah, I think there are some tremendous mixed messages that society broadly sends to police. Um, one that you already mentioned is this idea of the uh, the media portrayal of the police officer, the entertainment portrayal of the police officer as a gung-ho, kick-ass, that's the ideal. Another example is our political rhetoric. We have a war on crime. We have a war on drugs. Well, who fights that war? It's the officers. The officers are in the front lines, right? That's another phrase you hear a lot. Um in fact, one of the, I think it was Baltimore, but I may have the, the city wrong, one of the things that came out in the aftermath of, a, of an officer-involved uh, death is a placard in a police substation that referred to it as a forward operating base, as if they're there as soldiers in hostile territory. Oh, yeah. So, absolutely, we, we send that mixed message. We yeah, also send Not to mention the, uh, the use of surplus military gear. <laughs> oh, Lord, yes. I mean, yeah, that's that's a that's a totally. I mean, it's a it's a very related, but a very a separate issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, we send mixed messages in the way that we evaluate what counts as successful policing. When you think of successful policing, you're probably thinking of crime rates. And by the way, not just crime rates. What's often portrayed as crime rates is actually just the homicide rate of a city. Wow, the police in X city are doing a great job. Crime is way down. Or wow, the police in X city are doing a horrible job because crime is way up. When the fact of it is police have a very inconsistent and not well understood effect on crime. And when we prioritize crime, when we say the way that the metric that we use to measure police is the crime rate, we're incentivizing the type of policing that's actually pretty bad. It's actually causing a lot of problems. Well, if if driving crime down means that we're doing a good job of policing, then we're going to get out there and we're going to do aggressive, zero-tolerance, broken-windows policing. We're going to make a lot of misdemeanor arrests. Uh, we're going to use some aggressive stop-question-frisk tactics. The problem with that is it alienates the community, it undermines the police-community relationship, and it's also criminogenic. Making misdemeanor arrests increases crime, doesn't decrease crime. Mm. So... Yeah, I, I think we send some tremendously mixed messages on many different levels to individual officers, to police leaders, to agencies about what policing is and what the goal of policing should be. So uh, we, society, are part of the problem here. Um, Seth, uh, being a, a good police officer uh, to the degree that we've been describing in this conversation – 
uh, is certainly uh, an extraordinary achievement. I mean, it would require a level of professionalism, cool-headedness, restraint, and yet, uh, you know, physical courage and uh, ability to react on a split second and make quick decisions that I certainly don't have to muster in my job, and most of us don't. Uh, Do we reward good cops sufficiently? The short answer is no. The most meaningful or the most coveted sort of awards in many departments is this idea of courage under fire, the, the valor award, the going above and beyond in a physically dangerous situation. Of course, that's only a very small aspect of policing. It's an important one, but it's a very small aspect of policing. We don't often reward the relationship building, the community service aspect of policing in the same way, in part because it's difficult to measure, uh, in part because it's just not the way we've, we've developed the incentives. Informally, at many agencies, the sort of ideal, the, the goal of, uh, of many starting police officers is to get on SWAT, to be the officer in, uh, in, in the heavy body armor, the hard body armor, to be the officer uh, kicking down a door or searching a house as you execute a search warrant. And if that's the goal, if that's viewed as the pinnacle, then again, you see uh, a reward structure that doesn't really match um, what we want of police broadly. If improvements are to be made, um, do they have to be made one jurisdiction at a time across all of those did you say 1,800? I can't remember the number you gave me. 18,000. 18,000, excuse me. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. 18,000 primary city and county, city police department, county sheriff's office. Each on their own. I mean, yeah, they're they're overseen by various uh, statewide and and, uh, national agencies like the Justice Department. But uh, is there a way in which this could be a national thing or does it have to happen on a local basis, uh, you know, in a kind of patchy way? I don't think we'll get anywhere without local buy-in. I think that's absolutely essential. Policing is hyper-localized in yeah. the country. Yeah. So we need to have change on the local level. But that doesn't mean there aren't things that can happen on the state level or the national level that can encourage local jurisdictions to make the kinds of changes that we want. We see some of that already. Uh, the Department of Justice's litigation against police departments that have a pattern or practice of constitutional violations, for example. Most agencies pay attention to the consent decrees that come out of that litigation, but that's sporadic. Right. The Department of Justice doesn't do that very often. Right. It doesn't have the manpower or the financial means to do it very often. There are other possibilities that range from accreditation, putting conditions on accreditation, more meaningful, robust qualifiers, to putting conditions on grants. Many police departments get some money, often a good chunk of money, from the federal government for different programs. We could condition those grants on different things. There's also the possibility of state-level legislation. Policing may be hyper-localized, but it's state agencies uh, that certify police officers. If I want to be a certified police officer of Carolina, I have to go through the state certification process. So there's some possibility for certification changes. There's some possibility for the ongoing certification. In order to remain certified, you have to go through this type of training, for example. 
there are some possibilities for broader change, but ultimately, at the end of the day, if you don't have the buy-in of an individual police chief and his command staff and perhaps the local political leaders, you're not going to get very far. Are you optimistic? Do you think the the current level of attention uh, that's being given to this nationally, I know in a negative light currently, uh, is not going to result in a kind of resentment or backlash from police departments, but but an improvement uh, by and large? I am cautiously optimistic that we are seeing a paradigm shift in policing. Uh, and I'm, I'm optimistic because we've seen it before, particularly in periods of great public attention to policing. Prohibition was one. Uh, the immediate aftermath of the Rodney King beating was another. When you have sustained public attention, political leaders and police executives uh, are aware of that, and they pay attention to that. But change is slow. Change is a gradual thing. I think what we're seeing now is, uh, hopefully, planting the seeds for five-year, 10-year, 20-year shift in the paradigm of policing. What role do police play in a modern society? Uh, I'm pretty optimistic. I, I spoke a few weeks ago to the National Association of Women Law Enforcement Executives about this paradigm shift. Um, using the terminology of shifting from a warrior perspective to a guardian perspective. And it was very well attended, and people are really interested. They're paying attention to this sort of discussion right now. Um, officers at all levels and officers at agencies all across the country are talking about these issues, some of them very dismissively, but many of them realizing that the status quo is not working anymore, that there needs to be a change in order to improve things. And that's a painful realization. It's a painful process. No individual, no profession likes being criticized. And it's very natural to resist that criticism. But change and growth are sometimes painful. Well, Seth, it has been uh, painless talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed <laughs> Thank it. Thank you, Robert. I enjoyed it. Seth Stoughton is an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. You can always listen online, learn more, check out some extra material that we don't have uh, space to include in the broadcast. You can do all that at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or uh, another good thing to do, subscribe on iTunes. And if you do that um, and you're so inclined, you can also give us some stars and or write a short review. It really helps the show. 